What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a professor, one of the things I teach my students who are learning about children's literature is to understand intertextuality. Essentially, this means that texts have relationships and that texts can be shaped or influenced by each other. This is a concept that is often used and applied in literary theory. As we analyze texts, we often start looking at how other texts connect. We make the assumption then that understanding text as a group will help us to understand another text better. As a scholar, I've applied this form of literary criticism to much of my writing, but we don't need to be critics in order to understand and apply this concept. For me as a librarian, one of the most important times I use the understanding of how texts connect is when I recommend books. I'll ask what a child has read before. Then to find something for them to read next, I apply my understanding of how texts interconnect to tell them something else that they would likely enjoy. So if a child tells me that they like Harry Potter, for example, I might then tell them that they would like to read Magic by Angie Sage, a book in the Septimus Heap series, because it's also about a boy who is dealing with his own prophecies of his destiny in a world filled with magic. In fact, looking at reviews for this book, almost everyone says, like Harry Potter or for fans of Harry Potter, so there you can see intertextuality at work. But for me, helping readers see how books connect is not just so they can find books that they will potentially like. It's also about helping them to develop their own critical literary stance. Personally, I believe that we don't make meaning from a text until we connect it to other texts or even our own lives. In fact, when we talk of teaching kids basic criticism, we talk a lot about making connections, text to self, text to world, text to text. While we can read a text in isolation, the reading experience becomes so much richer when we make connections. Seeing how Harry Potter connects to the rich world of the fantasy genre and how it harkens back to classics like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings helps us to see Harry and his struggles against evil in a much richer light as we see how Frodo and Sam also fought their own evil. So while we actively work to make these intertextual connections in classrooms, here at Rachel's World, we'd also suggest that looking at how texts connect is a great way to not only find new things to read, but it's a great way to talk about text with your children. We use the phrase Achilles heel to describe a vulnerability. But what if that supposed weakness isn't a weakness at all, but the key to a person's success? For example... Richard Branson, self-made billionaire and founder of multiple companies, used his own weakness, dyslexia, to develop one of his greatest strengths, communication and delegation. Author and illustrator Mira Bartok talks to Rachel today on Worlds Awaiting about The Wonderling, her first novel for young readers that focuses on Arthur, a shy fox-like foundling with only one ear. What good could that ever be? Mira Bartok is author of the award-winning The Memory Place, a memoir. She's written and illustrated numerous nonfiction titles for children and has also edited and translated several picture books in Italian, Norwegian, and Sami. The Wonderling is her first novel for young readers, which will be turned into a film by 20th Century Fox. Here's Rachel and Mira.
We're on the phone today with Mira. Welcome, Mira. Um, thanks for having me. I am very excited to introduce your wonderful book called Wonderling to our audience today. It has a very unique character at its core. So let's start out today to tell us a little bit about what is your inspiration for the character of Arthur. Um, I think, you know, I, I was um, I was thinking a lot about a lot of things. I think most of my ideas come from a confluence of things. For him, I knew I wanted to draw to create a character that had a lack, but that became a gain later. And and like a lot of traditional folk tales and fairy tales. So I gave him only one ear, but you know you end up finding that he has incredible hearing abilities and eventually that he has incredible musical abilities. So I was sketching, creating, trying to create a character with only one ear. Um, and then, you know, the character looked a lot like my dog. <laughs> was very shy and um, a little vulnerable, like Arthur. And I was also listening to a lot of Dickens audiobooks at the time, so I was thinking a lot about that world. And then I always go back to the, that one quote from The Lord of the Rings, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And so I'm always interested in the little guy. So I knew I wanted this character to be a little guy, you know, and not some big, tough person, but someone who who comes into his own. So, yeah, a lot of things. It's hard to pin down one, one thing. It certainly is hard to pin down one inspiration, but I... I really appreciate that you mentioned Charles Dickens because I really saw, as I read the book, a very clear connection to Dickens and that kind of time period and that kind of writing style. So I know with Dickens, of course, he uses human characters to express his themes, but you chose animal characters to express your themes. So why did you pick animals instead of humans? Well, I do have some humans, and and um, I, I think my first impetus to to um, have a world of these, they're called groundlings, so they're half animal, half human. I, I Part of it is I just really enjoy drawing animals more than people, so really pragmatic. <laughs> you know, I really, really like drawing animals. Um, I'm not as good at drawing humans, and um, and, and I, I love animals. I worked at a zoo before. I, I just, you know, I just think about them a lot, and I draw them all the time. So part of it was that. And then the other part is that I wanted to create a, a kind of a hierarchical world, like, you know, a very class-determined world, like in Dickens, um, during the Industrial Revolution, and, and have an oppressed class. And it made sense to make that oppressed class these creatures that are not quite human, but they, they are, you know, they're part animal. And the lowest of the low are the animals themselves. But then you find out in the book that they actually can communicate and t- and my character starts to understand their own speech. So I think that's, you know, it's a kind of a combination of things, but it's really, um, it started out that I just really like to draw animals. (laughs) That's a perfect reason to, to start with that basis. And, and I, I do love the, the drawings and the essence that that brings to it. I think that that's one of the things that makes this a wonderfully unique book for children is that there are illustrations as well as text. So why did you decide to write this book particularly for kids? Why that particular audience? Um, I didn't really dis- 
you know, when I start out writing something, I just write. And I don't think about my audience at all until I have something really solid. You know, I had been working on another um, a, a book on um, some totally different topic for um, another publisher. Um, well, I didn't have a book deal, but I knew that I could get one because it was with my old publisher, and it was a book for adults, and it was a nonfiction book, and I was just not very interested in what I was writing. And at the time I was reading, aside from Dickens, I was also returning to a lot of fairy tales and fairy tale collections. I loved it you know, when I was younger, in particular, George MacDonald, who was a Scottish fairy tale writer and um, minister, and he had a huge influence on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And so I, I just, I think I just was really wanted to, you know, go back to that world. So I just, you know, I sat down and started writing, and then it, it became clear that my character was at that age where he wasn't quite a teen so I didn't have to deal with hormones, <laughs> and um, and he wasn't really, really little. So I think, um, you know, it's just I really like that age, and it just it just became clear because of his age and because of the kind of book. It, 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 it definitely was for middle grade. This really is a beautiful middle grade book, and the thing I love about it is that it addresses a wide range of themes, some which are truly connected to this age group, like bullying um, and Mm. the need for compassion to others. But there are other things like refugees and racism and authoritarianism and other really heady themes that are important for this audience, but may be extending their interest in into global issues. So why do you think it was important for you to address these themes in this way and particularly address these themes for that kind of middle grade audience? Um, I, I never start out trying to address anything, I think. I think I just come up with a character and then they and, and but I'm also soaking in what's going on in the world. So clearly this is a fantasy, but I I'm very attuned to the issues that are going on in the world and you know, I'm you know, I'm I've been really disturbed by the plight of so many you know, this huge, huge migration of refugees has been going on from Syria and other countries and Sudan and um and and also you know the increase that we've seen in bullying this past year, and um, and and from my own personal experience, when I was a kid, I was bullied a bit. When I was a kid, um, I got out of it by drawing comics for my bulliers. <laughs> I know if that's even a word, bulliers. But um, I, I I ended up just figuring out they loved comics. I loved comics. I put them in comics, and they became my bodyguards. So, But um, I never start out with uh, with trying to teach a lesson or a mission. I think it just naturally happens. You know, if you pick a character who's a little guy who's very shy and stutters, he's going to be bullied. And, and so it's all about cause and effect. How does he develop agency? Um, in, in, my, in my story, in this case, it's not from de- defending himself, but actually having compassion for another little creature at the orphanage. And that's how he gains bravery. That's how he becomes um, more courageous and, 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 and gains a friend. And, um, you know, there are a couple characters in there that aren't so warm and fuzzy. And in particular, Miss Carbuncle, who runs the orphanage, when you start to learn about her her background and how she became so awful 
um, and you learn about her early disappointments in life. I hope that you start to begin to feel a little bit of compassion toward her, even though she's so horrible. And I hope they do even more so in book two, because there are some big things that happen to her in book two. But the other thing, aside from compassion, is I would love my readers to think about wonder a little bit and to think about what makes what makes them feel a sense of awe and wonder. You know, I, I specifically chose my character to start his life out in a horrible orphanage surrounded by a wall that, you know, he many of the characters and many of the creatures, the groundlings at Miss Carbuncle's home, have never even felt grass beneath their feet. And when he when Arthur meets his friend Trinket and ends up escaping. And that's not a spoiler. We, we, you know, it's on all the book jackets, so you know he's <laughs> going to escape. You know, you feel like this is a wondrous world. Like you, you, I try to show things that we just take for granted, like seeing cows in a meadow or seeing the horizon. He's never seen a vast horizon before, and it's shocking. And so, you know, as, as, as we all know, you know, so many people and children are on their devices all the time. And it's, it's a little disheartening to me to see. And I'm on my, div- my phone sometimes way too much. And, and I just, you know, so I, I'd like just in a little way that, that my book is a reminder to just put that, put that device aside, go out and smell the flowers. That is a great way to put it, because I think just making that connection, making the connection between each other as humans and making the connection between us as humans and our natural world is something that was really clear to me in this book. And just developing that sense of wonder again, I, I really appreciate that you mentioned that, because that, that to me is one of the continuing themes through this book is just finding wonder and joy and hope in life. One of the things I love, of course, is music. I'm a musician and I love music. And that that was so amazing to me to see that wonder and joy and hope conveyed through this book, um, through that sense of music. So how did you put that in there? Why was that something that was important to you to have in there? Well, part of it was that um, I, I've, I used to play quite a few instruments and music was my first love. And um, and. I've been out of touch with that for a while, um, uh, and and I really want to return to it. And and so, in some, I think, very personal way, it was me trying to reclaim music into my life. But also, I think it's you know, when I think about um, anything that you do, I mean, Arthur is an artist; he doesn't know it yet. Anything that you do, whether it's um, drawing, whether it's playing an instrument whether it's writing, you have to, to be a good writer, you have to be a really great reader. To be a good artist, I think, I believe in a strong foundation of learning how to draw. And in this case, I knew that he was going to become an incredible singer, and I think he's going to play an instrument in book two. I'm not sure yet. But in order to do that, he has to learn to listen and also find his own voice. So it's a lot about the music component has to do with my own love of music, but also having this character who develops his own voice as an artist, which is kind of, you know, in a way it's very autobiographical in that sense for me, um, which I didn't really realize it until, you know, I wrote it and, and looked at it with fresh eyes. 
By the way, what kind of what do you play? Um, I actually play eight different instruments. So I am. Oh, like, okay, what are they? <laughs> um, I need to know. I, yeah, I'm I know. So no, no. Yes, I um I play the oboe, the English horn, the piano, yeah. the organ, the guitar, the uh, banjo, the harp, and the bagpipes. Oh my God! Do you play, <laughs> what kind of harp do you play? Because that's one um, of my instruments. Oh, I I, I just. At home, I just have a lovely little classic pet, uh, lever harp. Um, I have played okay. the big pedal harps, but they're just so hard to transport around and have space in your home to, to keep one. Oh, I know. So at home, I just have a lovely little four-octave lever harp that I play. So okay. at you know my personal playing is more um, you know kind of Celtic folk music types of Mine things. Too. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. that, that's such a personal connection. I love it. <laughs> That's yeah, so I fabulous. Just, I, I mean, it's funny. I just, um, well, I have two harps right now. One is a double, uh, Baroque double string standing oh, harp. Oh, gorgeous. A, and then the other one is a small Celtic medieval harp. Yeah. Um, but I'm looking to buy, there's a harp builder out in Vermont who has these, who makes these amazing medieval and Renaissance um, facsimiles of like very old instruments. And they're oh, really, wonderful. really good. Oh, so, so stunning. So stunning. I wonder you love the music. Well, the, well, well, the so, music so the really Wonder- stood out to me. Yeah. That's great. So the Wonderling series, which is right now just two books or, you know, one book, but I'm working on the second one. The first one is called Songcatcher, as you know, but the second one will be called The Singing Tree, and there's more uh, music to come. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see the, the characterization of Mrs. Carbuncle, too, because she was actually one of the characters that I found really sympathetic and was really interested in her and wish I, wish I, had, seen, wish I had seen more of her. So I'm excited to see more of her and the music in the second book. Yes, you you definitely will see the the twin sisters, um, but spe- especially Miss Carbuncle. The other character you will, the other character who just makes a brief appearance, the man with white gloves, who's rather a sociopath. Yes, he becomes very important in book two. Oh, well, you're just enticing us. But in the meantime, they can enjoy the first book, definitely. And I do love that visual sense of the book. I love the illustrations and and how you've strategically used them throughout the book and that wonderful visual sense. I know that there has been some talk of maybe a film or a movie coming out that would extend that visual sense. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's definitely a, a film, a movie coming out, and maybe more than one movie, and maybe a Broadway musical. We don't know. Ah. It's just they, they bought Fox Studios, um, bought the rights um, to do a series of films and a theatrical presentation. Stephen Daldry, who did, gosh, Billy Elliot, The Crown on Netflix, um, The Reader with Kate Winslet, you know, a host of theatrical plays on the London stage and Broadway. He's a director and working title films in the UK is the production company. And But I do know some things. I know that it will be um, live action animation like the Harry Potter film. Perfect. Um, I, I'm, we're hoping it'll be filmed possibly in Ireland. And the animation might be done at Peter Jackson Studio in New Zealand. I'm not sure yet. That was tossed around, you know, where they did the Lord of the Rings. So um, if that's the case, I am definitely going to that little hobbit village that exists because <laughs> I really want to walk inside 
I really want to walk inside Bilbo Baggins' Hobbit Hole or Hobbit House. So. Well, you definitely should. New Zealand is one of the most gorgeous countries on the planet. My father was born and raised there, and I hold dual citizenship. Oh so have family back there wow. and go back and visit with with less frequency than I would like. <laughs> but it's oh, gorgeous. Man. So so gorgeous. Well, my little character Trinket um, is obviously very inspired by the kiwi bird. Yes. I okay. I... Kiwis. I, that is so good to hear because I kind of felt that that was the case, but I wasn't quite sure. So that was yeah, wonderful. Oh, definitely. So it, it sounds like in the next few years, we have a lot to look forward to. Sequels and films and Broadway plays and all kinds of fun things where we can dive back into the wonderful world you've created. Well, I hope um, I hope people enjoy the book and, and also the movie, which I think will, it, it's possible that the movie will come out you know, around the time of book two. So I'm not sure yet, but um, it seems it seems like that would be a practical time, you know, and also based on what I know of every, you know, the director's schedule, but I'm not sure yet. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, again, we'll practice patience. We'll, we'll, okay. learn, we'll learn the virtue of patience while we wait, but we could always go back and reread the first book and, and dive in and enjoy it again. Thank you, Mira, so much for your wonderful writing and for the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, thanks. It's been a, an absolute delight. Author Mira Bartok talking about her novel for young readers, The Wonderling, which has been described as a parable for the differently abled, with the goal of empowering those with disabilities and educating others. Finally, Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team chats with BYU Radio sound engineer Alex Hyden. He begins the interview by asking Alex about some of his earliest memories of reading. Well, I don't think I can actually remember as far back as like maybe picture books, but I know my parents read those cardboard bound books that all the all the little toddlers and babies read. Got but the gold spine to them, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. I guess I do kind of remember having those. But the first kind of book that made a real impression on me was my dad would come in and read to us before we'd go to bed. This was probably six, seven, eight years old. And I remember him reading Where the Red Fern Grows. And even as a kid, I knew kind of the themes of it and I could understand it and I felt happy and I felt sad throughout the whole book, and it was a good time. And that's that's what books do, right? They make you feel something. And when we go to those early memories, that's kind of how we start to know how to associate these feelings, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can learn a lot from books and learning from listening to books and reading books. And another book that he'd read to us was The Hobbit. And those books by uh, Tolkien just help us really imagine ourselves in a completely different world and imagine the characters, imagine what they're going through and the choices they have to make. And So did some of these first interactions with books help shape the genres or the kinds of books you would start seeking out once you were reading on your own? I would say so, especially probably The Hobbit. So after I started kind of reading bigger books on my own, I actually got into the Redwall series and for those who aren't familiar with the Redwall series, it's by Brian Jakes. And it's kind of a children's fantasy series with animals as the protagonists and antagonists as well. And basically every birthday and Christmas, I'd get a new book and I, I would just go through those like wildfire. And those really helped me 
expand my imagination and have fun reading. And that that attaches a memory to it too because you remember like these events the books were a gift that you would get books became a part of how you communicate with your family that kind of thing yeah getting a book as a present is really cool whenever someone has a birthday that's close to me i usually get them a book of something of their interest because it's something that obviously when you read a book that someone gave to you you think of the person who gave it to you and then also you get taken away in a different world now, these are all books that you got to choose and have fun with. But as we kind of progress through your reading history, we get to high school and your teachers sometimes try to jag you in a different direction. What all books do you remember having to read for school? Wow. I mean, it's never really the same when someone, you know, obligates you basically to read a book. Although, even if the books are great, I do remember reading the classics, Great Gatsby the Old Man and the Sea, which oh, I actually yeah. really like. I think a lot of people get turned off by Old Man and the Sea because it's kind of slow and there's not really a lot of plot progression, but I think it tells a really good story. Let's see, another book that I read was Things Fall Apart, which kind of gives a broader perspective than maybe we'd get of the world uh, from an American standpoint. And, of course, there's... You know, the John Steinbeck and Shakespeare and all those that we'd have to read in literature class. But usually the books that I sought out on my own, I'd have more fun reading. But I'd say top two that I read in high school was probably The Great Gatsby and Old Man in the Sea. See, I love that you started with Gatsby because I was supposed to have read that in high school, too, I remember. I didn't when I was there, but when I got a chance to seek it out on my own, like you were saying, I did enjoy the book. I just couldn't when I had to read it, right? So do you have, you're a college student now, you've graduated high school. Do you have any advice for kids that are facing a book that they have to read, um, how they can enjoy it better maybe, how they can kind of take it and own it? I mean, this might be cheating, but I don't think it's cheating because it's part of literacy. Look, Try to look for a movie or maybe a TV episode or something that tells the same story as the book that you're reading. And then also go back and read the book. So you kind of get the context and maybe a way to understand it that's a little bit easier than reading the book. Because a lot of these books are written before our time, basically. And sometimes it's hard to understand. And sometimes they're dealing with issues or they treat an issue in a way that we don't understand why they're doing it that way. So if you maybe see a movie or maybe watch a YouTube video that explains it. The good thing about today is that we have so many resources like YouTube where lots of people do basically video essays and tell you what the book's about, analyze it and analyze the characters. And usually after I watch one of these videos of like a college text and then go back and read the text, I can understand it 100% better. Yeah, it's it's a whole new age. And Alex, you're reading my mind because I know you're a movie fan because we talk about them here in the office all the time. What are some of your personal favorite movies based on books? Wow, movies based off of books. I My first thought goes to the Lord of the Rings movies just because they're so well done and they're just amazing movies. And it probably got a lot of people into reading the books and into expanding their literacy. But my probably my favorite movie based off a book is actually Jurassic Park. And it's one of those movies that I actually think is better than the book. I know this is a show about books, so I Gasp. might not be able to say that. But I think it's really well done and it's exciting and it's scary and it's funny. 
And the book is good, too. So this established a good base for you to start reading. You're still a reader today? I'm still a reader today in my spare time, if I have any spare time. College is rough, right? Yeah. (laughs) But I really like to read. Um, When I was more getting into my teenage years, I started reading the Dune series, and that's kind of shaped my focus of my current reading as far as fiction books. I like science fiction, but I also started reading kind of popular science nonfiction books. Malcolm Gladwell is a good author if people want to get into the nonfiction realm because he really simplifies things and makes non nonfiction and popular science interesting to the common man, I guess you could say. Because books can be educational as well as being a little bit entertaining. Yeah, books are fun. I mean, even nonfiction books. I'd recommend that people read a nonfiction book because you can learn a lot and learn about the world around you and yourself. And they've been pretty much my favorite books to read over the past couple of years. Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team with Alex Hyden, BYU radio sound engineer, who talks about his reading habits through the years. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.